Broadcasting from Doksu Village on Jeju Island, this is the Korea File, a weekly podcast about music, culture, and society from around the peninsula. This episode is produced in collaboration with the Jeju Weekly magazine. I'm Andre Goulet. On this episode, what is Korean shamanism? Animism, looking to the natural world for the supernatural, is at the core of indigenous religions around the world. With its roots emanating from the shamanistic tradition of central Siberia, Korea is one of very few developed nations to have maintained this heritage. On the Korean mainland, mundang, or shamans, are primarily female, in contrast with the country's patriarchal tradition of Confucianism. Shamanism in Korea is a combination of magic and religion and oral history. So what about Jeju's unique tradition of shamanism? Filmmaker, writer, and photographer Joey Rosatano spent more than three years collecting myths from the remaining practitioners of Jeju shamanism. His documentary, At Search for Spirits on the Island of Rocks, Wind, and Women, premiered at the 2014 Jeju Women's Film Festival. A book of his photography work entitled Spirits, Jeju Island Shamanic Shrines, was released this week. This is part one of a two-part conversation. Really, generally, how do you define shamanism in a global context, or like in a historical context, from all over country, different countries? What is it? Shamanism is a term that has been highly debated and a lot of the regions that that still have shamanism or have experts that study that field have kind of been uh, trying to kind of uh, change the terminology. Like in Mongolia, I've heard that the Mongolian experts on shamanism are trying to change the official term from shaman to village priest uh, just because they, they don't really draw many parallels between Mongolian shamanism and, and the kind of better-known shamanism in Africa or South America. So I think these are all polytheistic systems that are quite different between regions, but the region in Eurasia, like what you would find in you know, Estonia or Siberia or Mongolia, in Jeju on the mainland, uh, in Japan even with Shinto, although Shinto has been, is, has been changed a bit. Um, I think all of those shamanisms are something that have a common element. Okay. You know, I think that is, I think they are, all are kind of the same religion, but with kind of regional differences. So including multiple gods, <clears throat> what, mm. what else in common? Um, the the way that the shaman is kind of a medium between the spirits and and between uh, the people the common folk. Uh, right yeah the common folk all of them in all of those regions are kind of charged with uh, uh, memorizing the local lore you know and and memorizing the myths of the community so all of them are are trained in kind of an oral tradition that's been passed down through the centuries and they're all healers as well I mean they attend to they are very, very much like uh, like village priests because they attend to, to people who have ailments or they attend you know they, they kind of uh, do different ceremonies traditionally over weddings and over funerals and, and they do act like the village community kind of uh, you know spiritual leader more or less but as modernity has come in their role has been a little bit marginalized, I think. You've said that one of the things that fascinated you about Jeju shamanism is that it's an intact system. So mm-hmm. what does that mean? 
that means that they're, um, for example, I mean, these, these, uh, these shamanisms, um, I, I think you would even have to group the European things like, uh, like uh, Greek and Roman worship into a similar type of uh, Eurasian shamanism, you know. I mean, you, you have these different, you have this pantheon of gods, and depending on the region you are within the, the spectrum of that pantheon, there might be cults that kind of uh, emphasize one god over another. Uh, it's the same in Jeju, you know, some villages kind of prefer one god over another god. And I think that uh, in this region, there are still functioning, there's a system in, in the villages where the whole system of the religion is still functioning. You know, I mean, you have, you have people who believe, um, who practice the religion, that practice it in its entirety, even though it's broken down in many of the villages. Some of the villages still have a complete system um, uh, like a ritual calendar, you know, all the, uh, important events in the village are, are kind of overseen and directed by the shaman. A, a, yeah. a, a village shaman explicitly for that one village, regular shrine rites, mm -hmm. stuff like that. Right, right. Okay. Uh, how many villages on Jeju have both of those components or all three of those components? Probably between 20 and 30. And pretty much every village has, you know, some you know, some remnants of shamanism or some of those components, but not all. You said that in villages where the line of traditional village shamans is broken, people still worship at shrines and contact shamans from outside to perform ceremonies. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the causes of the broken shamanic lineage? Well, one of the reasons would be, I'd have to say that like the, you know, there's political reasons, there's also social reasons. It seems like uh, Korea on its uh, trajectory to modernize didn't really take time to preserve its, its traditional culture like Japan did. Um, I think that especially during the Park Chung-hee era, a lot, of the, a lot of the shrines in Jeju um, you know, were either destroyed or they, the, you know, the people were actually discouraged to, to continue their traditions. So that's, that's probably the, you know, one of the major things. But it started before that as well. I think that, uh, you know, when the Christians came uh, to, like, the Halim area, I know that the strength of kind of the Catholic Church in that area. This just, is 100 years ago. This is 100 years ago. Years right, ago. right. That, that had a huge effect. So if you go to that area, to Halim and the Awal area, kind of, uh, I guess, kind of the Midwestern part of Jeju, the Northwest part, um, there aren't a lot of people practicing shrine worship there. And the villages that still do practice shrine worship, they're doing it in kind of a bastardized way, you know. Yeah. What does that look like? It, it's interesting, you know. Uh, there's a place. It's interesting too because a lot of the a lot of the uh, shamanism experts in Jeju they don't really want to acknowledge the areas that have some sort of remnant of worship but aren't necessarily like the the pure practice. So if you uh, like Sangui Village in 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 the Awal area, if you go there, um, there's a tradition where the mayors in the village actually lead a shamanic rite and they've kind of mixed uh you know confucian aspects like a confucian rite and the original kind of uh, shrine rite together and they've made kind of a synchronized version of of you know the 
of the um, of the original right, you know. But that right itself has become tradition. I mean, they've been doing that 60 or 70 years now, and it just kind of passes from one mayor to the next. Okay. And, I, and I witnessed that. I mean, I went there and I filmed it, which I, I think I was the first outsider ever to be in that village and, and filming that right. But, uh, yeah, it was interesting. The offering was completely shamanic. And, uh, you know, um, there was some recitation of the myth, like a, like a shaman would do, but it was uh, done in a Confucian style. Hmm. So, yeah, it was pretty interesting, you know. Yeah. So who worships? It's primarily elderly people, right? It's primarily uh, elderly people even people in their 40s and 50s from from the villages and mostly agrarian people fishing people and uh you know it depends on the village but in the villages where there's still the shamanic line which is inherited hasn't been broken you'll have people in their 40s and 50s and up uh worshiping usually it's the responsibility of the of, of the kind of youngest generation of married woman. So now what you'll find is a lot of women in their 50s and 60s are taking the responsibility of worshiping at the shrine, at the shrine rites. But during, throughout the year, people will go individually, not, on, not to these village shrine rites, but individually, and, and make their own offerings if something happens in their family or they have some concern. So why does this get passed on in those situations and not in, say, like urban Jeju situations? It's mostly because of the line of shamans. The, um, in, Jeju, uh, in Jeju dialect, it's called Shimban, which is the traditional uh, practitioner of, of traditional Jeju shamanism. And those, those, those people, they kind of have a, a family tradition. It's supposed to be that, ideally, that um, one child is, is chosen from the family to be the next to take over in the responsibility. And in the villages where that line has not been broken, that's where it's strongest. Beca- because that, that shaman really is kind of the the link and the glue that holds that community together. If, if the shaman dies and doesn't pass on the title to somebody else, it's pretty difficult to keep a tradition going. Although now they're doing that. Now they're compensating. Uh, sometimes shamans will pass away now and they'll bring in someone who, who knows how to practice the art from another village. And they're kind of breaking the rules now because of the desperation of the situation. So 25 or 30 villages where it's an intact system, maybe mm. a couple dozen more where, where there's some bastardized version of shamanism being practiced. Mm-hmm. Um, any sense of how many people that would be island-wide? Um, let's see. The population of Jeju is about half a million, right? 600,000 maybe. And uh, Jeju City, let's see, probably the... I'm, I'm just going to guess. I'm going to guess there's 150,000 practitioners of shamanism in some for, form or another on Jeju Island. Okay. And that, that may, I would not say those, those are definitely not the people from those pure villages who are still practicing uh, purely. But um, even in Jeju's uh, Chesa ceremonies, like the ancestral worship in the home, there's always a table set out for the door god, which is part of the Jeju pantheon. You know, so a lot of times the young people don't even know what they're doing, you know, why, they're, why there are two tables, you know, one for the ancestor that has passed and then one for the, the Jeju deity. But it's still there. 
And usually funerals, quite often shamanic ceremonies are, are practiced for funerary rites, even if the people um, don't really practice uh, shamanism in their normal lives. Yeah. So young people are not that engaged though, right? I mean, for the newest generation, not the newest generation, the Jeju millennials, right. but like anybody under 40, I mean, they basically just have this thing where they woke up and mom had invited the shaman over to like do the ritual once a year. Do they have, or accidental funeral uh, stuff, um, do they have, can we count on them to carry on these traditions? No, I think that most people who are below 40, um, they... And, and and those of that generation too they they don't really know the first thing about it to be honest I mean it has completely um, been kind of excised from the culture uh, sometimes I will meet young people who grew up in the countryside in their grandmother or grandfather's house and they will be familiar with all the terms and they'll be familiar with the practices to some extent but that's pretty rare so it's actually the, it's the village living that allows these traditions to continue to be used and, and done. Sure. Okay, so once yeah. you become urban, like, it's lost to you. It depends. You know, Shinjeju, there's a shrine. Uh, it's one of the most active shrines right in the middle of the city. Okay. It's behind a gas station in Shinjeju. And, and what that is is that, you know, they had the new village movement and developed the village, and they also had the anti-superstition movement during that time. And they, they tried across the country to remove shamanism, and they were successful in Jeju and on the mainland as well, but not so much in Jeju, not only to a certain extent. So even in Shinjeju, like the kind of, uh, you know, really overly developed area, there's a shrine, and it's, it's, uh, there's not a shaman that's native to that shrine, but I believe they bring someone in from an outside area. They, they hire someone in to do the, uh, to do the ceremonies. And sure enough, the people, there are people who live in high-rise apartments who moved out of their traditional house and moved into the high-rise during that time in the New Village movement, and they still go to the shrine every year on a regular basis. So, um, yeah, it's strange like that. I mean, you will... Um, I feel like Jeju City is, is urban, but its inhabitants aren't necessarily... <laughs> like, it seems like uh, if, if the people are from Jeju... Uh, there's probably a 50% chance that they really grew up in, in a rural environment and then moved in or were sent to school here, right. you know, so. Muism. Yeah. What's that? Muism is uh, shamanism. Okay. It's, it's Korean shamanism. That's the term for the, the, right. na the nationwide shamanism. Right. That, the, 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 the term, the, the technical term for Jeju shamanism is Jeju Muism. Okay. Yeah. So you've talked about the crossover between Muism, Buddhism, mm -hmm. and Confucian ceremonial rites. Right. Give me an example. Jongdali uh, village. Jongdali uh, village, uh, there's this famous rite in Jeju called the Yangdung Gut, the Yangdung ceremony. The Yangdung gods are gods uh, that come to Jeju every spring, and they bring with them the spring weather. But there's this period uh, right before spring, before uh, spring starts, where the seas are really rough. And traditionally for two weeks, the women divers weren't allowed to, to fish during that time. It's, it's really just a practice to, you know, it, it, people can get pretty greedy about the, it, it, it's like in that situation with fishing, um, you don't really know what your luck is gonna be like, you know? And, and I think like in those uh, communities, 
those women get addicted to you know it's the kind dollars. of a gamble in a way yeah, right. to the dollars yeah and I, and that traditionally comes up in the myths and stuff it's it's there so i think they had this prohibition for two weeks when the young doom the the goddess of wind okay came to the island and it was just a time where fishing was prohibited and it was a festive time where they would celebrate this rite for two weeks so a mythologically enforced sabbatical from catching stuff right um so how does this relate to Confucianism and Buddhism? Sure. So this is one of the, the better known rites in Jeju. And, uh, it you know, there's even a UNESCO-sponsored rite in, in Jeju City that's one of the Yangdung festivals. Although they have Yangdung festivals in most coastal villages. So most of the villages, the rites are led by shaman who perform traditional Yangdung ceremonies. But what you'll find in Jungda village is... Instead of that rite, uh, they've adapted a Buddhist rite, uh, which is shamanic in nature, which is dedicated to the Yowang, who is the god of the sea. And at that rite, they will prepare a table, an offering table, for the Yangdung gods outside of the door. So it's not at the main altar, but it's kind of, they call it a, an insa, like a, a greeting of the Yangdung gods. So it's important to kind of honor the shamanic gods at that ceremony as well. But at the same time, the Yowang god itself, the god of the sea, is a shamanic god, but it's a Buddhist priest who's leading the ceremony. And if you if you go witness it, it there are so many elements. I mean, the whole thing is shamanic in nature, the whole thing. So that's the tradition. A few villages like uh, Pyeongde village, Hangwon village, Jungda village, those villages have, uh, you know, a situation where the Buddhist monks have taken on the responsibility of shamanism. Yeah. Shamanism has been practiced on mainland Korea for generations as well. So mm -hmm. do they have any fundamental differences? Yeah, the, the gods are different. Uh, the music's entirely different. Um, on the mainland, uh, there's a lot of like melodic instruments, stringed instruments that are like the traditional Korean instruments that are used in goots. In Jeju, it's purely uh, rhythmic. You know, there, there are a few instruments. The, the beats are different. Um, of course, the myths are all sung in Jeju dialect. Um, the concepts are different as well. Uh, it's, it's a completely different regional belief system. It, it, it doesn't have too much in common with the mainland system, other than the main, you know, the main elements of a shaman being possessed by, by a spirit, you know, and taking on, like, the role of the medium between the spirits and the villagers. And also the role they share in those villages, whether it's on the mainland or here. That's right, yeah. As I understand it, uh, the village shaman system has broken down in most areas on the mainland. Right. And I've heard about these uh, shrines. Um, instead of having shrines that necessarily correspond to a particular village, it's kind of like people who subscribe to shamanism will, will uh, visit these shrines that are kind of more like business locales, like offices of the shamans. And it's kind of like consulting offices. Okay. But that's, that, that's not true in every region. There are some regions that, that are, that, like Jeju, they have traditions that are unbroken, like Jindo, I think a lot of the islands, but some mainland regions as well. It's a small, it's a small country, but there's a lot of communities, so mm. I'm sure it happens, but it does seem less apparent there. 
compared to on Jeju. Mm-hmm. So how far back can sh- shamanistic practices in Korea be, be traced? Boy, I I, uh, I think from the beginning, you know. Um, 5,000 years? I, I think so. I, I'm not, uh, I don't know how far they have been traced, but I can give you an example from Jeju. I mean, like in, in Gimyeong village, there there's a famous shrine called Genegi Shrine in Gimyeong Village that's um, attended to by a really famous shaman in, in Jeju. And I was talking to an archaeologist who told me that they had found kind of uh, prehistoric remains of what they thought would was that shrine, but in a slightly different location. A lot of the shrines kind of move over time. You know, there are different reasons they need to be moved in, in you know, a lot of that is recorded in historical documents if it's during the historical period. But uh, I don't know. It's it's hard to say. I mean, there are a lot of Mongolian elements in Jeju shamanism. So those stories obviously came over with the Mongolians in the 1700s. And then there are a lot of uh, elements that are similar to, to uh, Japanese shrine worship and... Uh, you know, I think that there's a lot of speculation. In, in Jeju, snake worship, snake deities are really prominent. And it's pretty much assumed that they came in from Southeast Asia, you know. And the day, and I mean, the, day, the gap of the dates is really, really, really wide. I, I think no one has a, a firm grasp, you know. I think it's all, it's all theoretical. Today on Jeju, it kind of seems counterculture. Like, I know it's not really, but it's not... A mainstream thing and on the mainland as we just said it's not mainstream at all so has shamanism always been kind of an underground thing I mean during the Joseon dynasty during the heyday of Buddhism and the Shila mm-hmm. dynasty was shamanism always something kind of done away from prying eyes in the villages was it always part of their communities was it was it yeah was it underground mm. In, in Jeju now, uh, there's a government-sponsored rite for the harvest goddess. Uh, Cha Chang-bi is her name. And it's called the Ip Jungu, like the opening of Spring Festival. And it's a government-sponsored festival. And it was a government-sponsored festival. I think I've seen photographs from 1909. It was 100 years ago as well, you know. And there are records of government-sponsored festivals from the 1700s in Jeju that were performed at the old, you know, government center, you know, central complex. So um, I think that it varies depending on the leadership of the time. You you had kind of pro-shamanist and then you had anti-shamanist. I think that yeah, there are records of of shamanism being practiced in the palace in different palaces that were contracted in by various kings or various governors of the different regions. So it kind of went hand in hand. I th- I think so, yeah. But but it's pretty tumultuous as well. Right, because yeah. in the eighties, mm-hmm. the the Korean government made efforts to eradicate shamanism. Right. In an effort to change what they perceived as Korea's reputation for being backwards and superstitious. Uh, so how did that period affect shamanism on Jeju? If you talk to Jeju shrine experts and shamanism experts, they will say that that period did not have a great effect. Uh, They will say that during the anti-superstition movement, which was part of that, that um, it had a lot of effect on the mainland, but in Jeju itself, 
you had things like uh, shamans turning in their instruments and, and signing off on that and promising not to perform shamanism again and then go right back to the shrines and start again. There are also accounts of people, of villagers, linking hands and standing in front of shrines to, to protect shrines from being destroyed by, usually by, uh, usually by Protestants who were paid by the government to do so. So there, there are like anecdotes, anecdotes of things like that. So there was a lot of resistance, but I think more than resistance, it's just that uh, the people here were isolated, so they just kept practicing what was comfortable to them and, and what they knew. I, I think you would even find people who supported the conservative movements, but who would also go to the shrine and who would also continue uh, practicing shamanism. I feel like Jeju is more of just kind of a lost, forgotten region. And they tried to implement that, but it didn't work. But on the other hand, um, there were a lot of shrines destroyed in that time, and that did turn the public opinion in the country against shamanism. So I think a lot of that fed back to Jeju. And I, that's the reason why you'll find a lot of uh, practitioners, uh, practitioners of, of, of shamanism now that don't really want their children to carry on the tradition. You know, I, th I think that there is a prejudice that has been successfully fed to the That's the Korea file for this week. You can pick up a copy of Spirit's Jeju Island Shamanic Shrines at Art Scenic and Space What in Tapdong in Jeju's Old City or online at paganswear.wordpress.com. New episodes of The Korea File are up every Wednesday on iTunes and Stitcher and as a featured contributor at blogtalkradio.org and eslrok.com. Tune in next week for part two of my conversation with Joey Rosatano. From Duxu Village on Jeju Island, I'm Andre Goulet. Yeah.